Welcome back to Thriving in Business and Life. This is Will Wilkinson. And this is Christopher Harding. We covered last week that whole challenging thing sometimes for us, and that is asking for help. Yeah, in this culture, it's uh, considered a sign of weakness. I know, I know. Kind of kind of funny. And we, we really explored you know, how to get over that because we, we need each other's input. We need each other's help to be at our thriving best. So... Well, it's part of the isolationism that's built into the idea of entitlement. You know, humans are special, more special than every other species. And then certain humans are more special than others, and they prove it by not needing help unless they pay for it. (laughs) Well, that's a whole other show. But uh, today... Just say it. (laughs) Today... We're going to really dive into kind of the next stage. So if you think about asking for help, the other, the other thing is to like who, who to ask, right? And so that's one of the aspects of, of resources. We're going to talk about how to discover resources, how to optimize resources and recognize them, uh, you know, and be able to use them productively. Well, and probably we should set a context here that you might say that we're, we're recovering consumers, that in this culture we're really programmed to consume, to buy stuff. Right. But our inherent nature is as creators. We're all creative. We create in our own ways. So creativity requires resources, and resources actually are the raw materials for creativity. You know, as you're, as you're saying that, creativity requires resources, and I totally get that. And it seems like, and maybe I'm just underestimating the creativity involved in this, but it seems like just about anything we do, uh, any task we undertake, uh, any project we're, we're heading into uh, requires resources, whether it's our own, you know, uh, whether it's the food we eat, whether it's the people around us, whether it's tools, whatever it might be. So, I mean, it, it seems like an obvious thing, but I, I know both you and I in coaching, one of the things we find is that not only do people have trouble asking for help, they have trouble identifying what resources they actually have available. Exactly. And the remedy to that is starting from the standpoint that I need resources to be <laughs> yeah. creative and yeah. to do what I need to do. It, it kind, kind of sounds silly to even say it, but we can miss that very important point, just charging ahead to do something kind of without getting our tools assembled. Right. You know, I'm getting this job done and I'm in a hurry. What was it? I think Abraham, was it Abraham Lincoln who said, if I have an hour to chop down a tree, I'll take the first 45 minutes to sharpen my axe. <laughs> right, right. You know, a sharp axe was a resource. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's, that's, there's preparation in that. So, you know, I think one of the challenges that I see, you know, in a lot of our thinking nowadays, we're in a hurry. Yeah. Everybody's in a hurry, and I think it's easy when we're in a hurry to overlook resources, especially people who might not be in our normal day-to-day mix. Um, you know, yeah. we talked about Toyota before, and what a great job their culture does at promoting the idea of think of everybody who's going to be involved in a project and a process and who will be impacted by it. And make sure you get their input as you're even in the beginning stages so that you're actually creating something and using that that intelligence, you could say. Yes. Tapping into the diversity that gives you team intelligence. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things we've discovered, as you know, in our work is that 
when we really tap into diversity, and we'll get into this more in our, our conversation about inclusion, but that what you're actually doing, as you said, is we are literally elevating the group's IQ. It's true, and it's one of those things that we have to experience to really understand it. Our bias tends to be, be towards, towards sameness. Right. You know, I respect this kind of intelligence or this kind of input, so I'm predisposed to looking for it in others. But actually, we want to look for something different because variety is more than the spice of life. It's the stuff of genius when you're working together. It's, it's very different if you have a lone ranger who's just doing something on his own. But most of the time, we are doing things together. Right, right. Well, one of the things I know you really focused on when we were writing the book, and we got into this in the online course as well, is how you can utilize resources to help grow your vision. Talk a little bit about what you, what you mean by that. What's, what's the idea behind that? Well, it's all important if we're going to thrive. Th thriving depends on leading with a vision. So you know where you're going, you have your destination in mind, and then you know how to navigate to get there. I mean, here's a very simple example. My wife and I live in the woods here in Oregon. We heat with wood. So, all year long, I'm gathering wood, chopping it, splitting it. When I build the fire, I need to use wood. I need to put it in the fireplace. And then I need to use a match. Well, those are very different resources. The match doesn't look anything like the wood. The kindling looks different. And my vision is that I'm going to have a nice warm fire. Right. Now, this may <laughs> seem very simple, but actually I'm gathering diverse resources to fulfill the vision I have. Well, and so as I'm thinking about this, I'm just going through a vision casting process with a, a client, and one of the things we're looking at is they've got this really wonderful vision, and now we're looking around and saying, well, what are the resources that we know we have, Right. and might there be resources we don't know we have mm -hmm. that will help really grow that vision and help it become even more of a reality? Well, I know you're highly skilled at teasing this out in, in your work with clients. Some, of, some people do this kind of intuitively. Other people have some resistance to it. But we can all learn how to leverage existing resources that we're aware of to find our way to the invisible ones. It, it, yeah. it requires knowing that there are some invisible ones. I like the iceberg image that everything we can see is like about one quarter of what's really there. Yeah, and I, I had uh, spent some time um, listening to a guy who's you know really talks a lot about vision, and he's tapping into some of the very old visioning techniques. And one of the things he talked about is that if you're clear about, like we've talked about, what is it you're aiming for, where are you headed, what's the feeling you're creating as, as right. you go that is part of the ultimate fulfillment, but he said, just trust in a way that if you're really clear about your vision and where you're headed, that things are going to start to show up that weren't even on your radar. Yes. He used that kind of radar analogy. Something's not on my radar. And if you've ever seen a radar, you know, where all of a sudden something appears. Ping. It's like, yeah, ping, like, where did that come from, yeah. right? Yeah. And it they, was there, but you couldn't see it until that moment. Yeah, and and so, you know, a lot of times I, I experience that uh, where I'm working on something or I see a client working and, and they have that experience. Suddenly something shows up. It's almost like, you know, whether it was some people say it was magnetized to them. Other people say, well, it was there all along, but they weren't looking for it. 
Well, and there's another way of looking at this too. Uh, they said uh, David was created by Michelangelo because he could see that David already lived inside the stone. <laughs> right, right. The next step beyond that was David actually lived inside Michelangelo first. <laughs> In other words, he was experiencing the vision of what he was going to create outside of himself first. And that's really what we mean by leading with vision. It's got to be alive inside us before we can create it outside us. Well, and it almost goes back to what we were talking about with Thomas Edison, who found a thousand ways not to create a light bulb yeah. first. Yeah, but he's so, very successful at doing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, on Michelangelo, I remember reading that, that it was said that he was carving away all the things that weren't David. Exactly. He just eliminated what wasn't part of David. Right. So one of the things that, uh, you know, we, we talk about in the course and in the book in regard to resources is knowing what's the best starting point when you're going out on a quest for resources and fulfilling a vision. Well, there's different ways to think about this. Uh, I've tried a variety of things, and it's, it's a little humbling to admit that I've come back to the simplest approach, which is be very aware of what's already present. <laughs> yeah. And again, this may sound so simplistic, but often we can be in our heads and be imagining something to such a degree that we're blind to what's actually present with us. So the starting point may be hidden in plain sight. Yeah, we've talked about brain blindness yeah. before and how unconscious bias can actually prevent us from seeing somebody's value or potential contribution. And so... That one, I think we, you know, we under, we understand. It also seems like, and I, my wife, Leela, is just a phenomenal networker. Mm -hmm. And for her, the starting point is, okay, once she knows what it is we're trying to accomplish, she starts asking interesting questions like, okay, who do we know yeah. that might know someone yeah. that might know someone? Yeah. Right. And so she's she immediately starts starting with who she knows, but... She'll always ask them, like, who do you know that might be interested in this? Mm -hmm. So she's, she's, you know, exponentially going out. There's, there was a, you remember the seven degrees from Kevin Bacon? Seven degrees of separation. Separation, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and it was, the whole thing was based on that if you went seven degrees in, mm -hmm. somebody you knew, knew Kevin Bacon. Right. And by the way, you're two degrees from Kevin Bacon. So, all right. Uh, just to prove the point. But what they've shown now is that with network theory is that with social media, we are all pretty much three degrees from anybody in the world. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It's amazing. And it's true. The other uh, quantum revelation that is gaining acceptance is that all communication is always two way. In other words, when you express something, even in thought, Lynn McTaggart says, thoughts are things. Even in thought, it sends out a ripple in the quantum field. It, it agitates the field, and there is a response. It's like radar. Well, Everything is like radar. Yeah. My, my dad, early on when he was in the military, was in military intelligence, and he was in uh, radio communications. And he, he said, you know, in later years, that he always felt like thought waves were like radio waves. They yeah. were just looking for a receiver, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, well, but to couple that with what Leela does, taking the thoughts and focusing them in words and asking questions 
amplifies the whole process. Well, which and is she, what she does. She right? does, and she's also just great because she's a very enthusiastic person at approaching it with. It's almost kind of like the Tom Sawyer paint the fence thing. Yeah, she's right. so genuinely yeah. enthusiastic about yeah. what she's working on. Right, everybody around her is saying, "I want what she's having." <laughs> yeah, exactly. She wants. They want to be part of it. Yeah. So. We have a, a an acquaintance who runs an incubator for inventors, mm. and one of the inventions that goes right to what you were saying is they have this mechanism now, I'll call it a machine and, or an instrument maybe, and they basically dial in the atomic signature of whatever element they're looking for, and it, you know put that in. You could say it basically sends out that that signature into the you know to the quantum field, and any elements that are in the vicinity with up to 15 miles light up on their, it's like radar, it lights up and they can see exactly where it is. They're using it for oil exploration now. Remarkable. So, you know, I mean, these things that seemed like magic maybe some years ago, here they're discovering resources by putting out that same kind of quantum ping that that we're suggesting maybe we have the ability to, to do as well. Well, we're venturing farther into brain science here, which really I love, and uh, making it very practical with some anecdotes, some stories, some uh, evidence. My wife and I were in New Zealand uh, during February, and we had a number of very synchronous things happen. One was we were uh, gifted a couple of days at a retreat center by the, the board of directors that I'd done some work with. We arrived, and we weren't the only ones at the retreat center, obviously. In fact, there was a workshop on, well, what was the workshop on? Raw food preparation. Which is right up your alley. Well, especially my wife's. And this wonderful teacher from England who now is a friend. But why were they doing that particular workshop just at the time? And they started at the day we got there. Now, I'm mentioning that as one of like 100 stories we could tell, you could tell. In other words, our expectations, our vision, asking for something, even unconsciously, really creates the likelihood of those kinds of things showing up. Well, and I'll go to the theoretical mathematician friends of mine who would who would basically argue that that if you know these things we feel are coincidences or synchronicities are actual mathematical probabilities. Right. And my my uh, my conversation with them is I I can totally agree that's the case. I guess what I'm suggesting is those mathematical probabilities may be occurring much more frequently than we're paying attention to. And we just don't see them. And so, yeah, so putting our focus on something really allows us to be aware when those, you know, synchronous things show up. Well, let's swing back kind of in the other direction towards real pragmatic stuff. And I'd like to ask you a question here because I know you're very good at leveraging your past successes. I've, I've watched you in the time I've gotten to know you, and you never create something out of nothing. I notice you're <laughs> always kind of going from one thread to another. Let's talk about this a little bit. Maybe you could share some of your, you know, how do you do that? Well, you know, it's 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 interesting. Um, I guess part of it is... A, for, for me, any project or, you know, client project or anything that I'm working on, it's a vehicle for relationship. That's, uh-huh. that's kind of a, a big thing for me. So in the process of creating something with people, if, if I form a really great relationship, 
I'm really looking to be able to continue the relationship. And so it's like, what else could we dream up to do together? Uh-huh. And if we've yeah. had a good yeah. enough time together, well, a lot of times we can find a way to make something else happen. Yeah. And we did this a lot um, in the film business in particular. You get a group of people, you know, kind of a large gypsy tribe in a way, that you've worked with on films and everybody knows each other and you have this synergy mm-hmm. of, of working together and you know somebody else might dream up the idea but they kind of call everybody in so it seems like there is the ability to catch the, a wave of momentum mm-hmm. if we're leveraging past success now that the challenge of course is we could also get stuck in a rut well, exactly, and I think that uh, it's important to be conscious of that possibility. But as you were speaking, especially relating to your old film experience, I was recalling how often the same actors congregate with the same director. In film. Right, right. You yeah. see George Clooney working over and over again with the same people. Woody Allen is famous for this. He has his stable of actors that he works with again and again. And I think it's because they're developing relationship, they get to know how they work, and they're comfortable. As you say, it can get to be a rut, but uh, it's a formula that tends to work. Well, so if we're looking at leveraging past success, and then we're looking at past success as a resource. Yeah, right. right exactly. And the, all the relationships that went with it, the momentum. And even, you know, it's, it's kind of the word of mouth. Uh, we've been largely fortunate to have to do very little marketing over the course of, you know, our, our work because people are kind enough to talk about us to their friends who then call us up. Well, which is the best kind of marketing there is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those relationships are, are, you know, super, super valuable, not only because of what they bring us in terms of business, but because, you know, we genuinely enjoy being with those people. Yeah, I'm just remembering my, my brother, who's a filmmaker up in Canada, told me that he worked on a project years ago that he was kind of financing on a shoestring in his early in his career. And he put in a rider, you would know because you're a pro in this field, where you know there was some residuals promised if the film went into profit. Right, right. right. So as it turned out, it did. Which and, is rare. Well, he was writing checks to people and sending them checks, and he was getting these alarmed phone calls. They were saying, uh, I just got this check from me. What the hell is this for? <laughs> he said, well, you know, the film went into profit. What? That never happens. <laughs> yeah. And he said what it did for his relationships with those people was amazing. And he felt like Santa Claus. Wow. You know, he was yeah. growing those relationships. And every check he wrote, it wasn't, oh, you know, here goes another couple of thousand bucks out of my bank account. It was, hey, I'm getting to share with my friends. Well, you know, as you're saying that, uh, I'm thinking about, too, another resource that I, I've learned about this the hard way and, and gratefully the easy way, is that our word is also a resource. Yeah, for sure. Um, if people can count on us. Now, there's mm-hmm. times when I didn't show up in a way that, mm-hmm. that people could count on me, and, mm-hmm. and that created a real you know, challenge. Uh, other times, you know, I've been able to show up and be just, super right there you know mm-hmm. delivering what people need so recognizing that our word our character and and how we show up in any given situation is in a really super important part of the equation well and it's also linked to finding invisible resources here's a little story a bit embarrassing about myself i was at an event um, a few weeks ago here and 
I, my pen ran out of ink. So I want to take notes. I always take notes. So I'm looking around. There's a pen sitting on the table. And I assumed there were pens on every table. <laughs> I wasn't sitting at a table. I was sitting in a chair in the audience. So I grabbed the pen and I used it and I forgot to return it. But as I was leaving, I kind of overheard something that allowed me to realize that the pen had been for the presenter to sign books. <laughs> and I took the pen. And as it turned out, they didn't have time to do any book signing in that. But I felt guilty about this for a couple of days. So I got in touch with the presenter who's in South Africa back there by then. And I said, hey, I picked up this pen. I feel bad. Could I get in touch with your PR person? He sent me the email address. I emailed her. She wrote back laughing and said, well, you know, don't worry about it. But it developed a relationship with her. She's interested in our work and we're <laughs> going to stay connected. And that could become a resource that was totally invisible before I simply listened to a little nagging feeling of guilt that I had done something I didn't feel good about. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting as you say that, that just, just the notion that, uh, you know, do the right thing. Yeah. And, and that just by the virtue of that, um, it does open doors and it, and it builds genuine trust. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the difference between symptoms and causes, because this really does influence what we consider resources and what we can see. If we, if we ignore cause in favor of symptoms, in other words, we're just trying to cut the light that's telling us the oil <laughs> <Right>. needs changing, <laughs> then the resources we want are going to be uh, some kind of scissors, right. maybe some masking tape to cover the light so we can't see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In other words... Depending on whether we're addressing symptoms or causes, we will consider a whole different range of resources. That's a great thought. And, you know, it's interesting because I've, we've talked about this before, but this one totally escaped me. I kind of forgot about that, that angle on it. That, yeah, I, I'm going to pursue the wrong resources if I haven't distinguished between not only symptom and cause, but correlation and cause. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what are the symptoms connected back to? Yeah, and, and sometimes, for, for example, you see two things happening simultaneously. And so there's, it's real easy to assume there's a cause and effect relationship. And so I go after this one thing that's correlated that may have nothing to do with the cause. And yeah. this is, you know, it's why the in engineering divisions have processes called like root cause analysis. They're yeah. trying to actually get back and distinguish. And I think... A lot of times it's it's very simple for us to forget. I'm I'm working with a client right now and they're having some challenges with one of their departments and they're assuming that the cause is this one aspect. Yeah, right. And in the conversation yesterday, it began to dawn on them that that may be a correlation that has nothing to do with the cause and they've been going after that like, you know, wildfire. That is a particular kind of brain blindness. And it's, it's very prevalent. I'm remembering the joke about the experiment done with a fly where they ring a buzzer and the fly jumps. Then they take off one leg and ring the buzzer and the fly jumps. And they take off another one and the fly jumps, not as high each time. And then finally, they've removed all the legs. They ring the buzzer and the fly doesn't move. Their conclusion, if you remove all the legs from a fly, he goes deaf. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I have kind of a weird affinity for flies, so I was kind of like, oh, yeah, fly. Me too. <laughs> but, I wish but, I could come up with a better story. But I, I love the, the point. I right? love the, uh, it's, it's kind of the, uh, you know, some people use the word idiocracy of, you know, that we, we don't realize we're probably doing, making those kind of assumptions or, or correlations. Mm-hmm all the time without realizing it. And we've talked about bias before, but bias is one of the huge factors that allows us to get confused between cause and correlation or symptom and cause. Well, I think it was you that was just telling me about a Chinese film you saw with a woman who befriended a homeless man and started to find out what the causes were that landed him in that situation, correct? Yeah, well, here's... here's uh, since we're talking about that, it's a really great film. If you haven't seen it, it's on, I think, either Amazon or Netflix, and it's called I Am Another You. Mm-hmm. And she starts, she comes to the U.S. to actually explore freedom. Mm-hmm. That was her, her thing, oh. and she's a, a filmmaker, a documentarian. And so she starts exploring freedom, and very early in her in her search, she runs into this young guy mm-hmm. who's going to show her a whole different kind of freedom than she had in mind when she set out to make this movie. You know, so again, a hidden resource. Well, it's a perfect example of what we're talking about because she had a vision. Right. And it was feeling based. She wanted to explore freedom. Yeah. And so with that as her compass, she came to America, began meeting people. She didn't overlook the homeless guy. Yeah, yeah, she she went with her, really with her, I, as she would say it, her instinct, you know, on, on this. But, yeah, I mean, well, and then she she basically did what we're talking about. She began to explore it more deeply. She started asking questions. She started to expand the network of what she was searching on. And it is, you know, you, you see people who are able to be generative. They generate yes. success after success. They seem to almost have like a a magical ability mm-hmm. to draw people mm-hmm. toward them. Um, I was watching somebody the, the other night uh, and just how fascinating it was that they were so enthused about something they were talking about. This is in a coffee shop. That before long, they've got a whole bunch of people around them who right. don't even know them right. who are fascinated by what they're saying. I think the term for that is their reality warp field. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Steve Jobs was famous for having a big one. So you got around him and you immediately wanted a Mac. <laughs> Worked on you, didn't it? It did. <laughs> and I never even met him. So this is something that extends out beyond us. Uh, one term for it is entrainment. Right, we right. We train others to the frequency that we're at. So, you know, it's like uh, birds of a feather flock together. Well, let, let's let's take that because I know we've only got a couple of minutes left. That entrainment concept, I, I want everybody to know that this is science-based. There's a lot of research behind this. There's a whole institute called the Heart Math Institute that Correct. studies this phenomenon yeah. of how our mirror neuron network and you could see our electromagnetic you know, energy fields, when we're present with somebody who's in a you know, a really genuine emotional state, could be excitement or, you know, so on. Our heart rhythms, our brain rhythms, our entire, you know, systems basically line up. And so, you know, the question is, who are you around, first of all, but also what kind of a field are you generating 
especially if you're looking to create things, are you being attractive and and something that somebody wants to be with you and do what you're you're heading after? This harkens back to what you were saying earlier about developing relationships, because it's empathy that does that. And there are opportunities that emerge if we're aware of the principle. I had a friend call me the other day, and he's quite troubled by his PSA score. Mm. His doctor is pretty concerned that he has some prostate trouble. His dad and uncle both died of prostate cancer. Mm. He's getting into his 60s now. So he's telling me this story on the phone, and he's someone I've coached. He's also a friend. I'm listening very carefully. He's asking me for help. He's asking me for some options. The moment he paused where I had a chance to respond, my response was, that must really feel scary. In other words, I connected on a feeling level. He was kind of going at me with data. Right. And I knew that my the best way I could help him was to connect heart to heart, to build that relationship. Well, it opens the door for a whole other different kind of a conversation. So It does, so we'll be back. <laughs> that's right. All right, so I'm Christopher Harding. You've been listening to Thriving in Business and Life, and you can reach us at thrivinginbusinessandlife at gmail.com. And this is Will Wilkinson. We so appreciate you tuning in week by week. Talk to you again next week. <laughs>